She comes of a highly educated official family from Suzhou, Lin Zhixiao's wife told them. As a child, she was always ailing, and her parents paid for any number of proxy novices in the hope that she would get better. But all was of no avail. In the end, there was nothing for it but for the young lady to take the great step herself, though as a lay sister, without the shaving of hair. And sure enough, her illness got better immediately. She is now 18 years of age. Her name in religion is Adamantina. She lost both her parents some time ago, and has only two old nurses and a little maid to look after her. She's said to be a great clerk and knows all the classics by heart. What's more, she is a very handsome young woman. She moved into this area with her teacher a year ago because some relic of Guanyin she had heard about, and because there are some old Sanskrit texts here that she wanted to look at. She has been living ever since in the Sakyamuni convent outside the West Gate. Her teacher was a great authority on the primordial branch of the Tantra. She died last winter. As she lay dying, she told Adamantina that she was not to go back home, but to wait here quietly for a call. That is why she stays on here and has never taken her teacher's coffin back. take one of the paths and they come to a kind of airy building I'm reading from the Hawks here with roofs of tile whose elegant surrounding wall was of grey plastered brick pierced by ornamental grills made of semicircular tiles laid together in open work patterns etc etc um, and, and Jia Zheng is like well this building is kind of out of place but then as they enter into the building they find that uh, there's like, it's basically a kind of enclosure for this small mountain of, of rock uh, with various holes and fissures and uh, there's all kinds of creepers and uh, plants and herbs, no trees, uh, growing uh, in great uh, you know, profusion. And, and here again, it, it the uh, the the language almost like spontaneously breaks into into poetry. Uh, so yeah. it says, "Not not a single tree grew in this enclosure. Only plants and herbs. Some aspired as vines. Some crept humbly on the ground. Some grew down from the tops of rocks. Some upwards from their feet. Some hung from the eaves in waving trails of green. Some clung to pillars in circling bands of gold." Some had blood-red berries, some had golden flowers. And from every flower and every plant and every herb, 
wafted the most exquisite and incomparable fragrances. So they decide, uh, yeah, they've got to come up with a name for it, right? Yeah. It's not going to be easy. Not going to be easy. One of the literary gentlemen uh, suggests dewy orchids. And then they go back and forth on couplets. The first couplet in, in the Hawks reads, A musky perfume of orchids hangs in the sunlit courtyard. A sweet aroma of gallingale floats over the moonlit island. That gallingale, I think, is a, a archaic English spelling of what's called gallingale now, which is something a bit like ginger, but a little different. So it's used in a lot of um, Southeast Asian cooking. And you do the same thing. You take the root and you, okay. you like chop it up and include it in food. And it has a similarly kind of, you know, if you chew raw ginger, it has like, you know, the flavor is quite powerful. It's, it's sort of similar. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's an assault on the senses in a similar kind of way. Mm-hmm. So um, they think it's not bad. They think that's quite a quite a good poem, don't mm-hmm. they? And they try some, uh, you know, the, a couple of them try out some other ones. Uh, another one of the literary gentlemen makes makes another another effort, right? They have a few suggestions, but uh, there's a general agreement, right? I think this is where he says. Down garden walks, a fragrant breeze caresses beds of melilot. By garden walls, a brilliant moon il- illumines golden orchises. Um, and you know, I I had a read of the Chinese, and it's it's quite good in that it's very neat parallels. I've talked about this before. How you know, in in this type of five or seven character poetry, having parallel form between adjacent lines. I think is quite important uh, and here that's achieved very well in the Chinese but the thing is the imagery is I think a bit tired you know it talks about xiang feng for example fragrant breezes like ming yue zhao jin lan the moonlight illuminates the golden what's lan that's kind of orchid I suppose the golden orchid and that could also mean uh, friendship ah interesting yeah. but again it's 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 not sort of fresh and original and the thing is Jia Zheng has now said, because this is such a kind of special place, because the fragrances are so sort of intense, uh, it really requires something kind of outstanding. I, I think actually at this moment, this is the moment where uh, Jia Zheng is almost on the point of uh, proposing his own offering for the first time, notably, uh, when all of a sudden he sees Bao Yu sort of in the corners, uh, maybe... Uh, with uh, an upside down smile, you know, frowning. And he, uh, you know, he says, what's the matter with you? What's your opinion? Mm. And, and Bao Yu says, you know, I can see no musk uh, or moonlight or islands in this place. Rather, he suggests the garden of spices. Um, and the couplet? Composing amidst cardamoms, you shall make verses like flowers. Slumbering amidst the roses, you shall dream fragrant dreams um and yeah this one is a bit more uh, a bit more original a bit more complex i suppose i think actually looking at it hawks's translation is very very good here because it's quite a difficult one to um i think it's quite difficult to pull off it's quite difficult to get it from the chinese to to english and and keep a sense of the poetry of it so i mean just picking up a few bits of this in the Chinese original, you're not merely composing, it's actually chanting. So he uses the, the term 
yin cheng, which yeah. yeah, is a kind of chanting aloud. Uh, yeah, or like, yeah. Yin cheng, dou kou is is cardamom, and then the shi you yan. So your 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 shi your poems you will be like yan. Yan is just literally kind of colorful, admirable, visually kind of gorgeous, I suppose, uh, or sort of luscious. And then um, the second line is. It uses this. It refers to something uh, called tumi, which is a kind of plant in in Chinese. I think it's the tip of the plant kind of droops, apparently, and because it droops like that, it's used as a as a metaphor for for sleeping or slumber. And so it's either said that the plant itself is asleep, or that it induces sleepiness in those around it. And yeah, and and this will cause you to yeah dream fragrant dreams, as it were. Your dreams will be fragrant. Basically, is is literally what it says. Um, I really like this one. I think it's a I think it's a great poem. Um, you know, I, I agree. Especially, I've been thinking a lot recently uh, about the sort of the parallels between the way uh, poems work and the way dreams work, where you have you rely on these um, kind of symbolic <clears throat> and metaphorical displacements. And so, in the first line of the poem, the the first. The fifth character is uh, the the character for sure for poem, and and in the second line, the fifth character again, demonstrating the sort of parallel the parallelism that you've been uh, emphasizing. The fifth character is the character Mung for dream, mm. um, and so the yeah the the poem very much highlights this uh, structural parallel between dreams and poetry. So yeah, I, th- I thought it was a, a nice. Uh, yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Yeah, um, nice the, the composition. The, the neat parallel there is 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 wonderful. Um, anyway, Jia Zheng immediately takes him to task for this and says that it's basically uh, almost plagiarism. Um, <laughs> he's he's drawn very heavily on an earlier poem, so the the first one in in Bao Yu's composition is Yin Cheng Dou Kou, Shi You Yan, right? Uh, and this other poem is Shu Cheng rather than Yin Cheng, but literally means composing in the same way. Um, and then rather than Dou Kou, which is cardamom, it uses Chiao uh, Ye, uh, or uh, sorry, Jiao Ye, which is um, like banana leaves. Uh, so banana leaves rather than cardamom. And then Wen You Lu. So your your writing will be like the greenness of the of the banana leaves. Um, so. It's very, very similar, um, and you can see that stylistically he's drawn on this a lot. Um, and so his father says, you know, because of this, it's not sufficiently kind of original. Um, but actually, the, you know, his his uh, literary gentlemen are quick to jump to Baoyu's defense um, and say, actually, you know, no, these kind of things are quite common. A famous poem by the, the Tang poet uh, Li Bo is itself uh it draws very very heavily on an earlier poem by the by the poet uh Cui Hao. you kind of don't have to go into them here but i did go off and have a look at them and in places at least it's incredibly similar um the two poems i think it's a conscious kind of homage uh actually that's if if people are if you know if listeners are interested in learning more about these two poems they're discussed uh in some detail in a recent kind of biography of Li Bai, or also you know, known as Li Bo, by Ha Jin 
entitled The Banished Immortal. Um, the, the poems in question, if people do want to look them up, are, uh, on the one hand, uh, Feng Huang Tai, uh, Phoenix Terrace by uh, Li Bai, and uh, Huang He Lao, the Yellow Crane, to- Yellow Crane Tower, Yellow Crane Building by um, Cui Ha. Um, so, I mean, you can find them both on, online. Um, I think English translations should be probably available somewhere um, as well. But but it's as you suggest, you know, it's there's a sense of homage rather than plagiarism. And, it, you know, it's a fine line between the two. Yeah. So they they'd leave this, this courtyard full of, you know, different smells and sensations. And then they find themselves looking at this uh, very kind of grand building. So I guess I'll read from the Hawks. They could see ahead of them a building of great magnificence, which Jia Zheng at once identified as the main reception hall of the residence. Roof above roof soared, eye up compelling, of richly wrought chambers and high winding galleries. Green rafts of dark pine brushed the eaves' edges, milky magnolias bordered the buildings. Gold glinting cat faces, rainbow hued serpent snouts, peered out or snarled down from cornice and finial. It is a rather showy building, said Jia Zhang. But, you know, his his hangers-on assure him that this it's okay to have a bit of of showiness uh, because it is going to be the reception hall for an imperial concubine. And, you know, it's okay to have a bit of pomp, you know. So we're imagining a very grand and elaborate building in the Chinese style. Everything uh, elaborate and carved and painted and, you know, and so the, the literary gentleman, the first suggestion is uh, Peng Lai, Peng Lai's Fairy Precincts. But, uh, but Jia Zheng doesn't like that. And then, then there's a really interesting passage where, and maybe this is also another kind of gr- dream-like components uh, to this leisurely jaunt. I'll read the hawks here. You know, the, the site of this building inspired a strange and unaccountable stir of emotion in Bao Yu, which on reflection he interpreted as a sign he must have known a building somewhat like this before. Lo, where and when he could not for the life of him remember. And because of this sensation, he's his mind is elsewhere and he's not able to come up with a, a name or a, a rhyming couplet for this, for this building when prompted by Jia Zhang. Uh-huh. It's a suggestion that this is something he's seen in his dream in chapter five? Maybe. That's my first. That would be my base hypothesis. I mean, it's very much suggested by the name uh, Peng Lai Xianjing, Peng Lai's fairyland, basically. It's very similar, right? To uh, the uh, Jinghuan Xianjing, right? I'm just, I was just looking up a bit on uh, Peng Lai in, in, the, um, in the background, and it turns out there is, in fact, a a different uh, apartment building named after Peng Lai in Hong Kong. Oh no! <laughs> um, as well as as well as the Apricot Blossom Village. Is that what you were looking for? <laughs> uh, that wasn't what I was looking for, but it was what it, it prompted me in the search. Um, I just wanted to find out some more about it. You know, whatever we could. And because he's unable to think of it, um, Jia Zheng he tells him off. He upbraids him for not being able to come up with something, and he says. You have a day, you have one day to come up with something, uh, otherwise you're in big trouble. 
Um, and because this is the most important building in the garden, it really needs to be good. And so I guess we get the impression that he, he might actually be using Bao Yu's suggestions. Around about this point, they realize that they're, they're maybe running out of time and they're not going to get around the whole uh, garden in one day. And so they, they move on and they pass over a large bridge above a crystal curtain of rushing water. And so this is essentially higher upstream from something they already passed. So earlier we talked about the place that Bao Yu had christened drenched blossoms, or, or uh, I think it was Qin Fang. And so he thinks that they should retain the name. And because this is the kind of uh, a weir, I think it's called, um, you know, a, a kind of dam of sorts for controlling the water, they should keep the name and call it Qin Fang Jia, so drenched blossoms weir, basically. Uh, but once again, his father is very dismissive of this idea. So they continue on, round the garden. And we have another one of these impromptu poems within the text. So their progress continued past many unexplored features of the garden, viz. a summer lodge, a straw-thatched cot, a dry stone wall, a flowering arch, a tiny temple nestling beneath a hill, a nun's retreat hidden in a little wood, a straight gallery, a crooked cave, a square pavilion, and a round belvedere. Uh, but they don't have the time to kind of stop and look at all of these different things. So it really is a garden of marvels. There are so many different fascinating and, and surprising things within this one space. It really does strain credulity to imagine that this could fit into just part of their mansion. Mm. And again, we have this uh, this sense that they really are going to fill this space up, not only with wild uh, animals appropriate to a rustic setting, but also with you know, various, they really are reproducing like a, a fake village up to and including a small temple and a, a nun's retreat, as well as a, a cave, which is really interesting. So is that like the, uh, <laughs> is that also, does it also transcend, you know, space and time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is the cave, you know, the uh, the primordial, primordial origins of man represented here? Is that where uh, the Monkey King uh, is residing? Is it, is it the Water Curtain Cave? It's very <laughs> symbolic, isn't it? It's at this point that um, Jia Zhang starts to feel a bit tired from, from walking around the garden. Mm. Relatable. Relatable, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so they try, they, you know, they, they look for a place to stop. Um, and they see another building through the trees, so they try to kind of get towards it but not before stopping to have a discussion about uh, crabapple trees, I think. Naturally, right? of course. Um, so it's a, a building with a, a whitewashed enclosing wall, uh, surrounded by weeping willows. We see uh, yeah, a variety of Sichuan crab apple tree, essentially, whose pendant clusters of double-flowering carmine blossoms hung by stems as delicate as golden wires on the umbrella-shaped canopy of its boughs. Um, so there are so many kind of uh, mythical feeling um, uh, plants and flowers in this garden, aren't there? And this is just a, another one of them. It's really kind of things from folklore almost. Yeah, yeah. It has a mythological, uh, ethereal quality. And, and there's kind of a, uh, a debate over 
why it's called the Maiden Crab. Um, and Jajang gives a kind of yeah what he refers to as a vulgar belief that it comes from the land of maidens. Uh, and it's for this reason it blossoms so profusely. And then Bao Yu is, who's getting kind of uh, uh, impatient himself, maybe. <laughs> he responds, he has a kind of a snippy remark, right? Yeah, he um, he says, oh no, well, obviously that's rubbish. Um, he says, surely it's much more probable that poets and painters gave it the name of maiden crab because of its rouge-like color and delicate drooping shape. And the name was misunderstood by ignorant, literal-minded people who made up this silly story to account for it. So yeah, he's he. You can tell he's perhaps losing patience a bit, but he's also becoming more forthright in in expressing himself, more willing to correct others. Um, I I like this idea of the land of maidens, mm-hmm. what they call New Aragua, so female child country, um, which is a very kind of mythic feeling place. You know, it's like. Um, and that, and that actually uh, again parallels an element from uh, a Journey to the West, Shioji, where they travel through Nutsugo. Do they? Oh, where uh, it's again a whole kind of matriarchal civilization. They they're almost detained, and they have to you know the usual hijinks ensue. Yeah, and and you know older tales are full of these kind of like absurd mythical countries where you know th- there are stories in european mythology of you know countries where uh no one has a like the the people have no heads or where people don't have to eat to survive or again yeah uh things Uh like that uh, an amazonia type myth yes that's a good parallel yeah so they then decide they have to come up with the name for the place we're on like round i've lost count at this point i I think this is round six or seven they're they're you know they they've been pushing on kind of slogging away at each other on and on the torment goes. So once again, Jia Zhong prompts them to come up with a name, and the literary gentlemen offer forth a few ideas uh, to begin with. So they try, first of all, uh, storks in the plantains, or storks among the plantains, basically. Jiao He, basically. And another suggests um, what Hawks translates as shimmering splendor. So Chong Guang Fan Tsai. So Chong Guang Fan Tsai. Um, a kind of splendid brightness um, and yeah uh, floating bright colors quite an interesting kind of image so everyone likes that name and we think oh perhaps the the literary gentleman will actually get to name one of the places themselves rather than constantly relying on Bayou to come up with the name but then he says do you want to do you want to talk us through his his point of view his idea is that okay we have these plantains which are green and we have these crab apple blossoms which are red and so uh whoever planted these must be thinking of the red and the green which are again these um symbolically charged uh colors right representing we've already talked about the the red you know the the red chambers or the uh, vermilion halls and the the green image maybe associated with spring. Uh, but also there's kind of, I, I think the, the implication is red is female, green is male. Previously, we mentioned the matching uh, male and female phoenixes. 
and so it's possible that on the symbolic level that's kind of a kind of what's going on that these are uh, representation of the meeting of the sexes that's how I would interpret that and so and so Baoyu makes a big deal about um, those the, the two colors here together and so clearly you know your your four character name should reflect both those colors and he he, he suggests fragrant red and this is the hawks lucent green uh, and the U is again the the jade the, the green jade that we've seen so much of before and of course you know it it's met only with criticism as usual um, and they they move on without another word the reason he says that it leans too much towards the red and not enough towards the green is yeah as we uh, as we mentioned the the crab apple has this this red blossom right and the the shimmering splendor name that one of the literary gentlemen suggested apparently comes from uh, is itself an allusion to a poem by su dongpo uh song dynasty poet who we we've, we've mentioned before uh, who did a poem about a crab apple tree which uses a very similar turn of phrase to the shimmering splendor one and so that's why he's very insistent that it you know it be kind of changed to uh to have both elements so we've had that round and then we go into the um something like a hall of mirrors right yeah maybe uh the building which is at the center of this particular scene yeah, it sounds as if there's all kinds of small little rooms inside, and each of them has their own um, separate motif. It sounds very busy, um, but we're we're assured in the description that it's a kind of uh, a productive frenzy, and that everyone really likes it. It's not it's not gaudy. It's but it is disorienting, right? They they even become lost mm. at various points as they're kind of um, going from room to room. And there, there are a few mirrors actually in the room um, and some false windows. Uh, so it does seem to be maybe, yeah, maybe it is intentionally a kind of a, uh, a carnivalesque uh, location. Yeah, he, he kind of nearly walks into himself, uh, Jia Zhang. He, he, he mistakes a mirror for, you know, actual space that he can occupy. Um, so, I mean, it, I think reading from the Hawks is probably a good way to go. Jia Zhang, after taking no more than a couple of turns inside this confusing interior, was already lost. To the left of him was what appeared to be a door. To the right was a wall with a window in it. But on raising its portiere, he discovered the door to be a bookcase. And then, when looking back, he observed that the light coming in through the silk gauze of the window illuminated a passageway leading to an open doorway, and began walking towards it. Uh, when a party of gentlemen similar to his own came advancing to meet him, and he realised that he was walking towards a large mirror. Um, and so, yeah, he, he gets hopelessly um, kind of lost quite quickly within it, doesn't he? And I guess Jajen knows the way. He's been supervising the construction of the garden more closely, and so he leads them out through the back courtyard, and they come to the uh, the weir that you mentioned a moment ago, and they discuss, you know, um, the source of the water in the weir. There's a channel which led off it, which runs into the southeast corner of the garden. I think there's some symbolism with the water flow that I haven't completely figured out yet. There's some suggestion that, you know, because a lot of people have really 
taken these descriptions and, and they try to reconstruct, you know, where the water comes into the uh, into the garden. And I like the idea that it may already be contaminated uh, from the the Ning household. I'm kind of recapitulating other things I've heard here, uh, but that seems to be a prominent theory that you know, if you s search for the the water flow, and you can see, maybe this garden is downstream, literally, of um, you know the moral decrepitude of the the Ning household that we've already discovered and uh, dwelled upon in previous chapters. Interesting. I uh, I hadn't picked up on that, but what it had the way it had struck me was that there was a um, that this garden is one of those places that it's difficult to represent it on a map. That there is this uh, unreal quality to it, and that it doesn't you know it doesn't add up. It's like a five sided square. You know, the space that it occupies could not possibly accommodate all of the things inside it, and and the yeah the layout of the stream is just another example of that. It, it... Although no shortage of readers and researchers have definitely tried to uh, formalize a representation, and so if you go online and and you share with somebody me with me a moment ago uh, a kind of a drawing of the garden itself, and and there's maps of the whole of the the jack compound. And um, I find some of this kind of that kind of scholarship I'm a little bit uh, uncomfortable with because I, I agree with you. I, I want to um, I want to revel in the kind of um, not the realism but the the imagery of the space more so than anything else. That's um, how I imagine it is that you know right. trying to recreate it uh, destroys it. You know, uh, trying to actually try like trying to reduce it to an image on paper kind of breaks the whole illusion. Uh, speaking of hyper-reality, I want to, there is a full-size, like, kind of museum, at least one, a recreation of this whole space that you can visit, almost like it were Epcot, which I, I think is, again, a, a further step in the, uh, toward the direction of hyper-reality, whether intentionally or not. There's different ways to read, and some people uh, are are definite realists, and they that's that's how they make sense of the world. And sometimes they're going to build full scale recreations of, you know, kind of in a, a kind of a, an homage to uh, the Borges short story, the the exactitude of science. Um. Uh, yeah. Apparently, there is one in in uh in uh, Beijing in the Xuanwu district. Uh. That was built in the eighties. Uh, <laughs> okay, see, <laughs> quite bizarre. In uh, the eighties, yeah, that's a great time to uh, to create fantasy with reality. That's a perfect moment, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's not how I study things, but I am kind of curious, and and I think that creates even more of a. Uh, by doing that, it makes the story even more unreal, and more dreamlike. And so, somewhat unintentionally, I think that contributes to uh, the project. So, he uh, eventually, uh, Bayou is freed from this um, this torment um, with his father and his father's friends, right? 
and so he he finds the way out of the garden and he's almost immediately waylaid by a group of um uh, his father's manservants pages and so we discover that actually all through the day his grandmother has been sending you know has sent for him several times she's wanted him to come come back from the garden and come visit her um but Jia Zheng's manservants have mm-hmm. prevented any of those messages from from reaching him so that he would be able to you know kind of uh have a bit more time to show off in front of his father and and that sort of thing do we feel like they've done him a favor here i guess that's an open question right um but that's definitely how they're interpreting it because uh, they want his they want his cash they want his goods this is almost like a, a very a very polite kind of mugging that occurs yeah, yeah that was the way i felt it you know they they want a reward for um keeping him from being interrupted so that he could you know have this time with his father which as i said you know they interpret as being a kind act but perhaps he wouldn't have uh, uh, he may not have appreciated so much especially toward the end right and um so he tries to say okay fine i'll give you each a, a string of cash you know so you know old chinese currency you may have seen before is um usually uh copper coins with a square hole punched in the center of the coin and the reason for those square holes was so that the coins could be stored together on long strings so the string could run up through the hole in the middle and you could have lots and lots and lots of them together on a single string. So presumably a string of cash is 50 or 100 copper pieces or, or, or whatever. Right. Um, but they don't want that. Uh-huh. They say, uh, we want what, whatever is in your purse that you're wearing. So he's, <laughs> he's wearing some kind of little bag around his, his neck that contains various kind of trinkets. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so they, they relieve him of the burden of carrying these trinkets. And as you say, it's a very kind of polite mugging, but there is, yeah, to me, there's a slight violence to it, right? There's a there's a slight undercurrent of menace. They know that Bao Yu is a pushover as well, and so he's an easy target. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so later on, uh, he's back, you know, in the you know, in the comfort of his usual female companions, right? Uh, and Grandmother Jia is there. And uh, Shiren, Aroma, notices that his purse and his trinkets are gone. Uh, and she she can kind of guess what happened. And at this, at this moment, Dayu overhears that the things have been taken. And she's under the impression that they took... Uh, a small purse that she had somehow like sewn or prepared for him. And this sets off another classic squabble between them. Yeah, it seems that she's upset, not even that they've taken it. She thinks that he's in fact given the purse away that she's made for him. Um, And so she storms off and she had been making him another gift. A perfume sachet is described as in the in the hawks, and she takes out her scissors and she begins chopping it up roughly. And you're right; it's a very classic scene. It's a good illustration of her character, right? Um, she is she very quickly takes offence and in quite a serious way. And she's extremely kind of self, kind of insecure, 
always sort of worried that uh, she'll, you know, she won't get what she wants, that, you know, her gestures won't be appreciated. And so it's like hmm. uh, she overinterprets all the scenes to that effect. And so she immediately jumps to the, the worst conclusion regarding his actions, uh, assuming not only, like you said, not only that the purse was lost, but he was that he sort of carelessly gave it away. Um, and so, yeah, she goes off and chops up this embroidered sachet she had been making him. Uh, and Bayou is unable to stop her, but he pulls out from around his neck uh, the purse that she gave him, which I think he had managed to conceal about his person so that the pages didn't take it. It looks like it was the one thing that he didn't manage to get their hands on. Which it, which demonstrates that actually he did, you know, treasure this item. It was kept close to his person, you know, by his heart, presumably. Hmm. Uh, like, literally yeah. and metaphorically, right? Um, you know, but it's kind of... It's a little too late. The, the new... Uh, sachet has already been uh destroyed um and so yeah he in a in a kind of uh slightly theatrical or or or, you know overly emotional gesture of his own takes off the purse she's given them and, and and throws it back to her and then she in a fit of rage starts chopping that up as well with the scissors um or is about to right uh i i believe he stops her just you know in, in the before yeah before this one is as well destroyed um which again it's so it's this back and forth this kind of dialectic where she does something very immature um an, an overreaction then he overreacts to the overreaction and she's about to overreact to that before he stops her from doing that and at that point they're kind of partly reconciled yeah he manages to kind of pull her out of that downward spiral um and they mm-hmm. um instead are, are reconciled and quickly tears turn to laughter and so they go off to see um lady wang bao yu's mother and there they find uh shua bao chai there uh they're kind of contemporary in age and as we mentioned before the third corner of the love triangle between uh bao yu uh dai yu and her and we see another uh new development in relation to this this fine garden right in addition to the the grand uh you know art architecture and 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 kind of landscaping um that's happening in the garden they're also going to have entertainment um as well right and right, so right. various members of the family have been sent off to different places to get um actors and and things yeah so uh jia chang was sent to suzhou and he has purchased mm, uh, 12 child actresses. Mm, um, and so they are, these um, workers, question mark, are um, to take a place in the new garden um, as kind of their residence. Yeah, okay. basically. As, as well as they're also going to uh, procure... Uh, with kind of scare quotes around that as well, um, some religious folk, mm. and apparently, yeah, th- there's already been uh, 24 little nuns. This is in the Hawks translation. 12 Buddhist and 12 Taoist have been uh, 
again purchased. And then most importantly, in addition to the 24 uh, nuns, there is a, another uh, young lady of, of note who will be joining the household. Yes. In the Hawks, her name is Adabantia. In, in the original, it's Miao Yu. And we've actually discussed her. She had a poem in Chapter 5. And that was actually one of the poems that we discussed uh, on the podcast. Because we, we skipped over a lot of them. But we we did uh, review her poem pretty briefly. Uh, she was known for her um, distinguishing, almost fastidious disposition. And, and that's the one where, you know, it's at the end the fine jade in the muck, in the dirt. And there's some implication that maybe, you know, she will um, be immersed in the the dusty, dirty world that she had been trying to avoid in part through her um, religious uh, vocation. So it's it's an interesting one. Again, we're having the... Hawks is following the same habit of rendering names of religious people with kind of Latin or other European classical uh-huh. uh, names. Adamantina being from Adamant- Adamantine, I suppose, so kind of incorruptible or impregnable, that sort of meaning. Almost like a diamond, like not simply a jade, but something harder, something... Uh... Yeah, absolutely. And and so her Chinese name, as we mentioned, is Miao Yu. So Yu being jade, and Miao being the word that everyone has used extensively in this chapter to talk about when poems are good. So we, we mentioned in the last on the last <laughs> installment on this chapter that yes. a poem, according to... Uh, Jia Zheng and his literary gentleman can either be uh, su, meaning kind of tired, unoriginal, even kind of vulgar or common, or it can be miao. And if something is miao, it's it's original, it's subtle, mm-hmm. it's even kind of touching the sublime. So it's marvelous. Yeah. yeah. So it's that miao that she uh, that she is apparently. And so this is her first introduction uh, in the novel, but she's going to be a, an important character. Um, there's some interesting things here. She had moved into the area with her teacher a year ago because of some relic of Guanin she had heard about. Um, and because there are some old Sanskrit texts that she wanted to look at. Uh, they also mentioned that she's memorized all the classics. So she's very well read. Um, and she comes from a highly educated family. And this life kind of seems um, to have been her fate, right? So she... She's always been kind of ill, and her family have paid for other young women to become nuns in her place. And this, though tried repeatedly, had no effect. And so they decided that she herself had to join, you know, had to take the robes of a nun herself. And as soon as she did that, you know, her health immediately improved. Um, so this, there seems to be a kind of fateful, uh, like a fatefulness in her becoming a part mm-hmm. of the 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 kind of clergy, I suppose. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to um, relate it back to what we've talked about before about fate uh, and the fate of characters like uh, like Lotus or Caltrop. Um, the fateful events surrounding Jenshin, um and a few other characters, right? And that's pretty much where the chapter ends. Okay. Any closing thoughts? 
I mean, it's been a wild ride. This is our first chapter since chapter five. I think that we've we spent you know several sessions on it. It's been it's been really interesting. I really enjoy working through the poems. The more that we do it, I I feel like we're getting a better sense for the language used, the references, and so it's becoming more and more uh, digestible. Even as it is, especially working through the original, it's a considerable amount of um, research and. I'm looking forward to see what happens in the, in the next chapter and seeing what happens with this garden. But it's clearly going to be a really important part of the uh, of the story moving forward. Yeah, we're setting out a kind of grand stage uh, for all of the events subsequently to play out. Mm-hmm. This is the, yeah, this is the setting for all yeah. of the... Uh, I mean, so it's it's strange in a way, but we're 17 chapters into the book and we're still, in a sense, kind of doing the the introduction for so much of of what's yet to come right so if the the book in total is 120 chapters there's some question over the over whether the last 40 chapters are written by the original author or not but as it stands there's 120 chapters and, and that number i'm sure is not arbitrary right it's clearly uh related to you know um 360 some days in a year uh you you can see this being as a kind of a a very kind of a holistic comprehensive imagining of a world of a setting of a life and so i guess we are only a a fraction of the way through and we've covered a lot of ground so far but there's a there's a huge amount left to do so yeah i guess in the same way that they they go through the garden one bit at a time we just have to do the same you know Move forwards, stop, admire, comment, move on. You know, I would say that I think it's worth it to, we are traveling at a sort of, um, what do you say, like a Dante, you know, kind of a, a very leisurely pace. We're not, um, we're not flying through it by any stretch of the imagination. And so I'm kind of, uh, I am imagining, uh, you know, people at home, how, how they are engaging with the text. Maybe if you're only reading the English, it might seem a little slow. Um, or if you already know the story uh, growing up or something, maybe it will seem a little bit slow. But I do think that, you know, I, I think it really is going to pay off, both for us and for listeners, to um, to pursue some of these references, uh, to pursue some of these the, the Tang poetry, and to uh because it really is like this is a great introduction to chinese culture we we really have we are touching upon you know all the classic texts basically you know here and there uh all different periods and and you know this is you know it's agreed to be one of the uh you know the the pinnacle of the traditional Chinese literary traditions. And so if you if you were to spend more time with one text, it makes sense that it would be this one. So uh, I, I think uh, I think it's worth it. And and there seems to be, uh, you know, a lot of attention. So I'm really uh, excited to, you know, keep getting feedback and comments and critique. And so that's how about we end it there for today? Um, so this has been again this has been rereading the stone um, you can find us on twitter as always at at 
Rereading Stone. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash rereading as well as Reddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash rereading the stone. Um, stay safe and uh, hope to see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.